So here we are. Here we are. It's the end of the month. It is. It's the end of October. Yep. When this actually, nope, it's not. It's the beginning of November. Ooh, it's November the 1st. By the time this episode comes out, it will be... No, wait. No, what are you talking about? God dang it, let's start all over. (laughs) 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 Too many animals yelling. Stop yelling, animal. Why do you never say anything when I want you to say something? The cat won't talk on mic. Oh my goodness! It is late in October. It is. It is the last, as, as you know, because you are currently living in it. It's the last full week of October. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow is October twenty something. Twenty six. Twenty six. So this is it. This is our last episode of the Halloween season. The spooked. We spent the whole month on a spooky thing. What Not was that? The Frankenfern. The Frankenberker. The Berker. <laughs> the Frank. The broke man. The broke man, the broken man, the broken tales of a broken man. (laughs) Or a woman. Written by a broken woman. (laughs) And so much more than that. Uh, So we already covered the plot. Yep. And we already covered, you know, kind of what we thought about it. It was good. So what's the point of this? Del Toro. Yeah, we are. It's Del Toro time. And oh, by the way, we should probably do the intro. Nah. everyone i'm phil and i'm molly and it's, it's del, del toro, toro time. time it's del toro time and it's about time to get back to del toro time <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's always kind of del toro time around these parts every day is halloween every day is a halloween you're a little bit closer no it's not that's gross i don't even know where that song is from every day is a winding room by someone i think it was used in the is movie it by batman Batman Superman. No, it's a different artist. <laughs> Batman Superman. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Uh, we have one more episode on Mary Shelley's 1818 edition of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. But this one's not going to cover the plot. No, we already covered the plot. Yeah. And we covered uh, it in mayonnaise. We covered it, covered it in our, <laughs> our creamy dreams. Stop. Gross. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't <laughs> you you put the thought of mayonnaise into my head that's why i was like oh what is mayonnaise it's creamy what rhymes with creamy dreams I mean, no, doesn't, doesn't. Doesn't. <laughs> what is this episode i'm phil <laughs> <laughs> we already did that it's del toro time and there's so why did we spend first of all We've covered a lot of Frankenstein now. Mm-hmm. What was our original reasoning for covering Frankenstein, besides the fact that you're doing it in school? Because uh, Del Toro really likes it. He doesn't just really like it, though. He's, like, obsessed with it. He has life-size statues portraying scenes in the movies all over his house. And not just portraying scenes in the movie, portraying scenes behind the scenes mm-hmm. of the movie. Uh, but so in his traveling exhibit in the at home with monsters exhibit, yeah. uh, there's like a whole like Frankenstein section mm-hmm. that has like different art based on Frankenstein that has his collection of like prints and volumes of Frankenstein yeah. and statuary. And what does he say about Frankenstein in that exhibit? If you can remember, like, I can't remember what I ate for dinner two weeks <laughs> ago, dad, <laughs> you actually brought it to me. You were the one who was like, look at this. He said, what was it about the the book and his adaptation of it? About him being afraid to... Oh, he was afraid to do the movie. And why was that? Because he really likes the the, the, the book. 
Yeah, like it's sort of the sense that he could never do it justice. Mm-hmm. Like it's sort of his white whale is how we have referred to it on this show. Um, he's sort of... I don't think we've ever said those two words together before. I ever. said it was his white whale, like I think in the first episode of this series, like of the Frankenstein. I don't think you did. I think I did. I, I will go back. Don't if I think you did. I will give you a dollar. If I did... <laughs> I'm not going to go check. I'm not going to listen to this again. <laughs> I'll probably give you a dollar at some point in your life. And That's you can, true. And you can pretend it was a performance for this. <laughs> um, no, he basically, yeah, he, uh, it's kind of his, his white whale, which is like his, this huge thing that he has been sort of chasing his whole life. Um, because a lot of his movies have Frankenstein elements in mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Um, Mimic. Mimic. Why is it the one I always go to? Well, it's it's not, not even his best movie. No, it's about a person creating something, though. And it destroying them. But not just like the whole like the whole creation got out of hand situation. But now that we've read the book, like the misery situation. The misery, yeah, like the isolation and like the the like mother dead mother figures. Yeah, and think about like in Hellboy, like. Hellboy's feelings of loneliness mm-hmm. and despair that he'll ever... He's also just as tall as Frankenstein. He's just <laughs> as tall as Frankenstein. Tall characters. Uh, so there's so many aspects of this uh, story that have sort of crept into Del Toro's mm-hmm. work. Uh, so what I want to talk about a little bit today is just themes. The way different ways the the, the story can be portrayed, different sort of approaches to it, mm-hmm. different... Uh, just sort of interpretations of the text. I'm not going to have to do any work in AP Lit. All <laughs> unit. <laughs> All unit. Uh, so I'm going to read a segment from his introduction to the annotated Frankenstein with annotations by Leslie S. Klinger because yeah. uh, Del Toro does a good long uh, essay at the beginning mm-hmm. about not just his involvement with Frankenstein, but kind of what the book's about. But he says here, uh, All my life I was in love with monsters. This is a fact. I discovered Frankenstein through the movies, like most people do, and was enraptured by Karloff and Whale's creation. It was years later, at the start of adolescence, that I stumbled upon a pocket edition of Mary Shelley's work. The first thing that struck me was its literary devices. It was the first epistolatory novel I'd ever read, and the fact that in many ways it bore little resemblance to its filmic counterparts. Shelley's book moved me to tears. I wept for the monster and admired his thirst for revenge. It spoke to me about the essential contradictions of the spirit in the world. And beyond the tragedy of it all, a notion emerged that was demolishing to me. The villain of the piece was life. Being was the ultimate punishment and the only blessing we received. And in the absence of love, it was hell. And then later on in it, he says, uh, well, he talks about in in uh, in the essay about how Mary Shelley herself uh, he calls her the modern Galatia, or Galatia, Galatia. Uh, the Galoshes? No. <laughs> in the story of, of Pygmalion, the man who creates the sculpture that comes to life. Um, it's, an, uh, it's an old myth. Um, okay. Like a golem? No, he creates a beautiful woman oh. uh, who comes to life. He falls in love with the statue and it comes to life. And, oh, right. Okay. Uh, he calls her a modern Galatia because she is a woman who, because of her, the time she was born, she was just by the by social pressure, sort of formed by the whims of the men in her life. Mm-hmm. But how she broke away from that and rebelled against that in an era of rebellion. The Romantic period was this era of extreme rebellion from the young against, strangely enough, against the new discoveries of science. They, they, what they saw is the rigidity of science. They, they, they longed for the romantic again. So they were looking towards the past to create this new future. And Mary Shelley 
funneled all of her pain and loss the end of her life into this as we've discussed into mm-hmm. this into this book so uh you just mentioned off mic that you really it really struck you that Guillermo del Toro said that this is a book where uh the 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 villain is life yes and that that's kind of your your only punishment and your only reward uh what how what does that ring true to you the monster yes he's a terrible being and Victor Frankenstein was ignorant and could have done a lot of things differently. But neither of them were villains. They weren't... Well, the monster might have been near the end, but... Frankenstein wasn't a villain. He was just a kid, and then he did something terrible, and he was like, oh, I just did something terrible. I'm going to ignore my problems and continue to live. And the monster, well, he was alone and like ostracized by society. So he was like... I'm going to destroy the one who created me. But the only reason either of them ended up being like that was because of life. And the monster had no one who loved him. So he was basically in a living hell the entire time. And Frankenstein wasn't until the end. I mean, there are times when I have felt alone. And that hasn't been for a while now. Especially when I was in like middle school in my younger years. I say as... That was two years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Three years ago. Um, It's, it is, it's a living hell when you feel alone. Like, there's not really a point. And it can do really messed up things to you. Like, yeah. Well, obviously, I think that's one of the things that Shelley is, is calling out in this book is Mm -hmm. that, like, the, the, our greatest hell is, is isolation. Uh, not like being alone so much as like feeling there's like absolutely no one mm-hmm. who cares about you or that you can turn to. Uh, even if you prefer to be alone and live alone, like we we do need that. that We're connection. social creatures. <laughs> we are social creatures. And we are lucky at least in the sense that we aren't the only ones of our kind. Mm-hmm. Like the Mary Shelley has created a, a being that is firmly in its own space i now understand the doctor (laughs) yeah it's that it's that it's a similar thing but where a character a pop cultural character like the doctor takes that isolation and pursues companionship by being a good person like Mm -hmm. the monster kind of goes in the opposite direction yeah also it's different with the doctor because he was surrounded by people who loved and cared about him and then they all died right well let's kind of the mary shelley story yeah he's taken more of a frankenstein position like the oh i see what you're saying he's more the creator Mm -hmm. so right here uh uh del toro writes in his thing he said then as now the game was socially and existentially rigged by men a game of shoots and ladders that was all shoots for her and all ladders for men Miraculously for us, Mary harnessed her gut-wrenching loneliness and oppression and conjured a book that was destined to outlive and outshine those of most of her male counterparts. The modern Galatia sang louder and clearer and demanded to be let loose from all the modeling hands that surrounded her. Uh, If hell is others, then the creature experiences it like no other protagonist before him or since. And when he recognizes his true plea and the unforgiving circumstances of his existence, he quests to kill his God, to seek his God and curse him. For in lieu of love, he chooses the one emotion he can dispense at will, hatred, 
But like all art, the final element of this composition is paradox. When you silence your God, when you free yourself of him and realize he was himself a lonely man, simply a man, then you find yourself entirely inescapably alone. And I think it's interesting that Del Toro keeps returning to the theme of loneliness when mm-hmm. he talks about Frankenstein. I mean, it's a book about loneliness. It really is. It's a book about loneliness and the falling away of everything you love. Like whether it's taken from you or never given to you in the first place, like mm-hmm. always denied you. Um, how does you? How do you think that ref- is? Re- how do you think that's a reflection of Mary Shelley's life? Well, now I'm sad. <laughs> well, her mother, her husband, her children, everything. Her yeah. father never gave her affection. Like her stepsister. It's her stepsister, yeah. Like. Everything was ripped away from her. Quite like Frankenstein. <laughs> right. The objects of her love weren't ripped away from her by an... Well, I guess this comes back to I was going to say by an outside force, but I guess the outside force that just ripped them away was... Life. <laughs> just life. Just living. So, yeah. So, when you see life itself as your as your adversary... Like, where do you go with that? What do you do with that? I'm going to punch it in the face. Yeah. How do you punch life in the face? By punching the air. <laughs> you got to fight it. Well, who, I mean, who in the world, what do we call people who sort of like strive to punch life in the face? Realists. Are they realists? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a realist. I would say that's kind of what artists do, is they kind of grab life and twist it. Hey, I'm going to make you into something and you're not going to control me yeah fight me i mean i mean i guess that's kind of what yeah i guess that's kind of an artistic thing is like you take the elements of living and you turn it into your, you control it you rest it into something you can control i i also think that people who fight for like rights and stuff because mm-hmm. they're not just letting life like oh i guess whatever yeah they're taking it and throwing it back in life's face right like an act, a form of activism. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess there's a lot of ways you can attempt to wrestle control from the sort of dispassionate forces of life. I was going to say, it's like trying to get a TV remote from your like sibling or whatever. And then I remembered the Sonic games on Polygon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> My roommate Sonic. <laughs> I just rewatched those. We don't need to talk about that on our show. <laughs> we don't want people to get upset. Um Let's talk a little bit about, now that we've ta- touched on isolation, the themes of isolation, let's talk on the themes. A lot has been made of the book's themes of homosexuality, uh, the gay themes oh, of right. the book. Uh, not just between like Henry and Victor, which is one of the ones people tend to point out, which is like that the, the extreme male companionship that sort of overshadows the male-female companionship. Oh, I don't know. I... Why can't they just be good friends? <laughs> you know, when you read it in this way, you can sort of say that this book is about same-sex couples not being able to have a close connection, um, always being kept apart, always being forced apart by circumstance. Uh, not just Henry and Victor, but also characters like uh, Elizabeth and um, I can't think of her name. The uh, the Justine. Uh, Justine. And if you read it through that lens, through a through a psychosexual lens, through a um, 
where the characters are because sex is never mentioned in the book it's always kind of there Mm -hmm. in its absence uh it's like the great gatsby in the elevator (laughs) oh yeah tell us about the great gatsby in the elevator there's a scene early on in the book where nick and some guy who's at a party get in an elevator together and it's obviously a euphemism for gay sex and Uh it's hilarious because i was the only one in my class who got that until my teacher pointed it out (laughs) what makes it an obvious euphemism (laughs) I would have to read it out to you for you to get it, <laughs> but it's definitely gay sex. <laughs> Is it like the turtle scene in the Graves of Wrath? I don't know. That's the scene where a turtle crosses the road very slowly. I think it's just supposed to be about a turtle, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No. So, so, yeah. So, that kind of thing where where because the author isn't going to write about... And not just sex, but like attraction mm-hmm. and se- sexuality. They have to, they leave it out entirely, which only makes it more obvious to people who are looking for it. Um, I don't know. I think it's an interesting. We have a whole story about a creature being born and there's no sex, about a man creating life twice without a woman. And there's no talk of like, he never says, like, this is unreal, this is unnatural. And both times, well, first time Henry arrives just after the creature is made. Yeah. And the second time Henry is somewhere near Frankenstein. When he destroys the woman. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of which, uh, women get treated pretty poorly in this book. Mm -hmm. Uh, Starting with... The mom. The mom. (laughs) Let's think of all the horrible things that happen to women in this book. Well, first, Elizabeth gets really sick. Okay. And then she's still contagious, but the mom's like, I got to take care of her because I love her. The mom gets sick and she dies. Yeah. Then um, Justine is abused by her family. So she goes to live with the other family, the Frankensteins. And she is arrested for murdering a child that she's known her entire life. And she gets executed. Then um, shunned and humiliated and and then executed. (laughs) And then there's Elizabeth who is in love with her betrothed Mm -hmm. and is constantly worried about him and is kind of like the mother figure to a lot of other characters. And she's like, oh, I'm so worried about my Victor. And then she gets murdered in cold (laughs) blood by the monster. Uh, Then there's uh, Safi and... uh, Oh, I can't think of the sister in the house. Mm -hmm. can't think of her name. Uh, Who, well, the sister is forced to live in poverty yeah take care of her father she seems happy though <laughs> happy enough yeah um and then Safi, of course is like tossed around by all the men in her life she eventually takes control of her yeah of her situation do you think that they like are out of poverty now because she brought like jewels and stuff oh they're just fictional characters they don't really exist they're and they'd be long dead by now <laughs> <laughs> So don't worry about them. <laughs> I have no idea, actually. I really would like to know like what happened. Just write me another book, Mary Shelley, in the I afterlife. wonder if there's been any fanfic. I don't want to know. You should look it up. No. Look it up. You look it up. I, I want... Maybe I'll look it up. You... I, I'm i not having that in my search history. Do you know... Again, it's not all dirty. <laughs> it's probably just... <laughs> I will tell you that there has been much Frankenstein fan fiction written. It's called Most Frankenstein Movies. <laughs> Because they're certainly not adaptations of this book. Um, So women are treated 
first of all, they're treated pretty poorly in the mm-hmm. in just in the thing, and then they're not given a narrative voice. Yeah, um, their stories are always told by men. Uh, they're always relayed to us through the men in the tale. What about what about what's his face's sister? What's his face's sister? The guy Robert. We don't ever hear from her. Nope. We only read his letters. Uh, for all we know, she doesn't exist. <laughs> this is yeah. Uh, I read a fascinating piece about this book as seen through the lens of the one of the off. I guess one of the oft ignored things about this book is the fact that Mary Shelley wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about it a lot, but we forget this is a woman's story. Yeah, it's a story about about the way a world the world has treated a woman. We totally forgot to mention one of the women who are treated terribly. Who? The, Frank, the monster's bride. <laughs> That's oh yeah, we totally forgot. Yeah, she doesn't even get a chance to live. Yeah, he's like, oh, nope, goodbye. He, he takes the ultimate control and rips a woman to pieces before she even like gains consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a. Again, it happens in like two sentences. He yeah. says, "I tore her to pieces." But if you think about it, that's got to be a horrible thing to witness. Is this man tearing a woman apart, like her whole body, just ripping it to shreds with his hands? Like that's there is something so visceral and ugly and horrifying about the, that image. Then to think it was written by a woman, a young woman who had experienced so much pain and loss and like just terror at what life was going to bring next. Like, I wonder what that, I will always wonder what that whole sequence meant to Mary Shelley. Maybe she was writing about Percy's ex-wife. Could be. Or her, her stepsister in Lord Byron. Well, it's also in a, something of an abortion scene. Mm-hmm. Um, the death of a child before it has a chance to, to live or a stillborn scene right or a stillborn scene there's so many different ways you can twist that scene to to fit this well i guess you don't even have to twist it look at the scene in order to fit like the notion of of loss and the horror of loss miscarriage and you can see her being the you can see her positioning herself as dr frankenstein yeah but also positioning herself as the monster Mm -hmm. witnessing it in horror and being angry at the at the great loss that he's the loss of of something before he even had a chance to to enjoy it and you can see her as the monsters what should i call her the the monster's bride i guess yeah yeah exactly okay so how is mary shelley the bride well like she was emotionally destroyed by her father yeah and just her husband like her like losing her husband losing her children yeah she's torn up inside (laughs) but she still wrote this book which is impressive yeah yeah well i think because she was torn up inside because she was torn up inside she wrote this book uh del toro talks in his introduction about how we tend to bandy around like the terms like this is the first science fiction book or this is the first modern horror book or gothic horror book or uh, this is, you know, this book is psych- a psychological thriller or, and he said that, like this book defies categorization mm-hmm. because to do that is to pigeonhole it or put it into like, is to, is to limit it, like to limit what it is. I personally, on this reading of it, this book moves me like in a way that like I forgot it's moving. And I just see this book as so much of the, of, of a, of a woman expressing her pain and anger and frustration at the world. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I mean, I don't know if you do, but that's that's my experience. With oh, the no, no, I totally do. <laughs> what does it mean to you that 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 kind of book got written when it did and, um, hit and found a popular audience? I think she's a time traveler and that <laughs> she's actually from now and she was writing it for warning in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the fact that this book managed to receive such a huge audience doesn't surprise me um because if you don't look deep into it like you don't really see that much and it's a good book like mm-hmm. and people were probably like "Ooh, this is a good book it's so scary but like as soon as she came out as a woman the audience was still there but the love wasn't because i think people started realizing what this was about and what do you think that would do to an audience at that time? Displease them. <laughs> Why would that displease people? Only the men. Why them? They don't like being told when they're being bad to women. <laughs> and I think that it would reach out to a lot of hearts and like tug at the heartstrings and people would get scared of that because sad things tend to do that and then people run away. I think you're exa- absolutely right. I think it's because people saw all of a sudden saw how much power the written word could have in the hands of a woman mm-hmm. uh, and an uncompromising cry of anguish uh, and terror and horror. Like the, some of the, the thing that's this horrific novel that just made you come all over goose pimply was written by a, a young woman like that. A woman could have wield that much control over the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think offended the sensibilities of a lot of men at the time and women because, yeah. you know, you get used to, internalized misogyny very good (laughs) you get used to where you know society tells you you're supposed to be yeah but damn it i think (laughs) this is such this is mary shelley's story it is it's her book and it's her pain and it's her characters and it's her 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 like on every page Mm -hmm. she's just bleeding all over the page she's using um umbridge's magical quill And now the words are carved all over her body and she's written it in her own blood. Right. I think if you read it not as a horror book, not as a science fiction book, not as a monster book, although it is all of those things and more, I think if you read it through the lens of this is a this is a woman in pain. In pain. I think it's even more horrifying. This is a cry for help. Or help or a cry for justice yeah. or for for freedom or for something. Uh, it's a cry it's a cry yes yeah i would say it's even a an inarticulate cry like mm-hmm. a, a scream out into the the uncaring void um <gasps> what the uncaring void well yeah like like del toro says it's about life is if life is your enemy you can't go anywhere to escape it mm-hmm. it's all around you i mean um you could but don't do that right you pretty much mirrored what he said uh in what you just said, he says that this book can be read read on so many different levels. At the top is the fact that it's just a, a ripping good yarn. Like, it's a good book. Like, it's entertaining. Mm-hmm. It's fast-paced. It's f- spooky and... It's very well written. It's very well articulated. Mm-hmm. It bops around from points of view, so you're never, like... You're always, like, getting someone else's perspective on the story. But then, at the like, underneath that is this, like, strange allegory about life. Um, and then like at another level, it's, you know, like it's, it's, you know, deeply this raw pain. Um, 
So you can just you can keep reading it and get deeper and deeper every time you read. It. I don't think it's I don't think it's impossible to look too hard at this book. No, <laughs> she's Mary Shelley. <laughs> so now I want to swing over to the subject of should Guillermo del Toro attempt to adapt Frankenstein? No. Why do you say no? Because I think that such things are best left to the imagination. Also because when you're scared to do something, it never comes out being good. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the book is the book and there's never going to be anything like it again. Mm -hmm. Unless Mary Shelley comes back from the dead to make the movie, you will never get the same feeling again. But I would really like him to make it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think he could bring to it? Um, I think he could bring a lot of personal experience. Like, because he's felt pain. Oh boy, in his life. And I think that his interpretation... Also, I think he would just make a better movie. Than? Than the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> because he could... He would probably do be more true to the book. Which would be nice. Um, but I think that because he's frightened to do this as a movie, he shouldn't. I think if they were going to make another movie and he got the call to like, you want to make this movie? He could, he probably wouldn't, <laughs> but I think that he should help with the movie. I think that he should be there seeing how things are going. While he's not making the movie, he is an important factor as the background man because he knows so much and he has dived deep into the center of this book and ripped out Mary Shelley's pulsing heart <laughs> from the book. And I think him doing the movie himself would be very overwhelming for him and it would end up like the Mountains of Madness. It would never happen. <laughs> I agree uh, with what you say. I think that if you're, if you're that intimidated by something, it may mean that you're just not supposed to touch it, mm -hmm. that you need to let it be that part in your heart that, has driven you this whole time, but maybe you shouldn't tinker too much with the thing that's been driving you. Maybe you should let that live. It's like a car. Don't tinker with your car too much or it'll stop. Or it'll stop. Stop working. Uh, but I like the idea of what you said about him producing, like bringing his passion and his expertise and his insight to a production of Frankenstein. As far as I can tell, almost every major production of Frankenstein has been directed by men, mm -hmm. produced and directed by men. Uh, I think it's the flaw of, not the flaw of the book, but the flaw of the structure of the book is that when you read it, you're like, this is a book about guys. Uh, it's all about these three men, uh, this captain, this scientist, and this creature, and how the world affects them. And I think when you... When you look at it at face value like that, then you give it to a man with a strong vision because you're like, well, this is about a man with a strong vision. Go at it. I would love to see the next major production of Frankenstein directed by a woman uh, with a strong horror vision, a strong someone who's who's experienced at directing uh, psychological drama, who has experienced uh with directing actors in situation, I, I don't know, like I don't know enough about the, the art of directing, but someone who's really good at coaxing pain out of performances, because I wanna see this story, this is a woman's story, I wanna see it told by a woman if it needs to be told again. Yeah. 
um, not with oh. not with women in the in the roles. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of keeping it Dr. Victor Frankenstein, the male monster. I think that Mary Shelley wrote about these men in the way she did for a reason. Uh, I would like to see a woman helming a project that tells this story, but from a woman's perspective, because I think that that's what it is. I think it's a woman's story and it needs to be told by a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what I want what? I want Victor Frankenstein to be played by an actor that's not 40 years old. <laughs> I would love to see a younger Frankenstein, but not make him like, not make him sexy. No. Uh, like Ken Branagh, I mean, he wasn't in his 20s. He was older by that point. But when Ken Branagh does, did the movie, and we'll see it at some point in the far future, he really bumps up Victor Frankenstein's manliness and his sexuality. And I would love to see all that sexuality and and passion funneled into the pain and anger of the story like mary shelley does like she doesn't make it about sex she makes it about pain a, about pain and isolation uh it's about a horrible monster man who goes and kills a boy a bunch of boys <laughs> that's what the, that's what it should have been called frankenstein or a bunch of boys <laughs> <laughs> um but that's just my opinion uh i mean watch we'll put this episode out and like two days later Guillermo Toro will be like, I'm finally directing Frankenstein. And we'll go, yay, because <laughs> it would yeah. still be interesting. Yeah. Um, of course, we thought that Ken Branagh's was going to be amazing when he announced it. And then it became a thing. It certainly became a thing. I can't wait to watch it with you one of these days. Well, we get to re- watch Rebecca first. So We got to watch Rebecca first. We got to get all these other episodes out first. Uh, do you have any final thoughts on the book Frankenstein? I can't Mary wait Shelley? to read it again. <laughs> In yeah. two weeks. <laughs> what do you plan on bringing to the discussion in your class? Um, other perspectives, because a lot of a lot of the discussions I feel like are going to resolve revolve around sympathy for the monster, but I want to f- focus more on sympathy for Victor Frankenstein and how he was 19 years old when he started working on this monsterman, <laughs> and it was a dumb choice, and he regretted it. But he also his entire family was murdered except for. That one guy, Ernest. Ernest. (laughs) And then he died in the cold, alone, with no one. (laughs) (laughs) And the monster just ran off. I think that it's great that you and I read this book together. I think it's great, too. Had the opportunity to discuss it together. I think it's vital to read this book if you're going to get a perspective on Del Toro's works. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, in a sense, all of his movies are about loneliness and the uniqueness of each person, but how we're all kind of aberrations and weirdos. Uh, spooky. Yeah, <laughs> it is spooky. Um, I also suggest everyone pick up a copy of Leslie Klinger's Annotated Frankenstein just to have this essay. It's brilliant. I'm going to like come to school when we first have our first discussion with just like stacks of paper (laughs) like actually here's this that contradicts what you just said i do want to read just one more excerpt from it this is the ending this whole this whole essay is great so everyone should 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 read it he says and here we are two centuries later faithfully depositing flowers to this most exquisite storyteller this extraordinary galatia who refused to be shaped by her circumstance and gave us all life And we try in return to help her creature stay alive. We strive to turn a curse into a blessing. We hope that in some way, somehow, our gratitude, our love, can reach him like a whispered prayer, like a distant song. 
and we dream that perhaps he can stop amid the frozen tundra and the screaming wind and can turn his head and look back at us. And we hope that then he might recognize in our eyes his own yearning, and that perchance we can walk toward each other and find meager warmth in our embrace. And then, if only for a moment, we will not feel alone in the world. And then we arrest him because he murdered a he bunch of people. He did murder a bunch of people, so, you know, like, give him... <laughs> But, you know, he, he deserves a warm cell. Give him a warm cell. I'm pretty sure most prisons have heating. Not back then. I don't think Del Toro was talking about back then. <laughs> I think he was talking about now. <laughs> I guess he didn't say go back in time and hug the monster. Go with the doctor, have them stand face to face, and give each other a hug. I do believe that his, his essay was being metaphorical. Yeah. <laughs> that we want to see ourselves. We see ourselves in the eyes of this creature, and we want him we desperately want him to see that we are all in this together. And maybe then he would stop being that creature. Well, Ollie, I think that's it. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of sad to say goodbye to the book for a while. I have like two weeks. Yeah, and I know. I go You're right stuck back. with it. <laughs> maybe I'll just read it like six times before and then. Just recite it from memory. Yeah. Uh, you guys don't have to read the book. I have it memorized. <laughs> that's true. We're done with Frankenstein, though. Mm-hmm. We won't be returning to this story for a little while. Our audience, however, will be returning to it next week. Yep. The next episode, actually in our next episode, probably not next week, but the, our next episode is going to be... Bride of Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein, the one that's based on sort of part of this book, but also has Dr. Pretorius and people in jars. We won't give away anything, though, because... That episode was recorded way before we recorded this. Yes. And we had no idea what we were in for. No, we didn't. Even though I had seen Bride of Frankenstein, I didn't know what we were in for. So uh, as you listen to it, bear in mind that we had not read the novel. And so we may make a few false assumptions about the Mm -hmm. story going in. But our heart's in the right place. We meant well. Yeah. I mean, I'm not telling you that. I'm telling the listeners that. Yeah. I mean, I had no, I had never read the book ever. I hadn't even looked at it. I hadn't touched a copy of it before. Do you remember the movie starts with Byron and Shelley and Shelley? Like having a conversation. Was that the second movie? Yeah. Oh, That's Bride of Frankenstein. It has them all sitting around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, chatting. and I remember, I remember because Mary was really, really pretty and I commented mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. Played by Elsa Lancaster. Yep. Yep. Yep, that's quite a movie. Enjoy it next week or next time, everyone. We've got a bunch of other movies coming out, so don't you worry. At one point, you'll hear The Raven. Did we watch that after Fr- Bride Frankenstein? Yeah, because it's not going to air for a while. Okay. Oh, boy, The Raven. A little peek behind the curtain here. Uh, so uh, please join us, won't you, for the next exciting edition. This has been a really low-key episode, by the way. It's been very sad. Yeah, yeah. I'm sad to say goodbye. Goodbye, Frankenstein. It sounds like this is the last episode of the podcast. It's not the last episode of the podcast. It's far from the last episode of the podcast. Far, far, far from the last episode. We've got many movies to come. We've got many discussions to have. Maybe even a couple more books. Maybe even a couple more books. Who knows? But uh, one thing I do know is that I'm Phil. And I'm Ollie. And we'll see you next time when... It's it's Del Toro time. time.